You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison, joined shortly by Peter Bookvar of the Bleakley Advisory Group. But first, the news of the day with Haley Drasnan. Hey, Ed. Well, markets wavered between gains and losses on Thursday as investors continue to pay close attention to ongoing stimulus talks. This is really dominating headlines. We're seeing the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, and the Dow being laser-focused on a package deal before the election. This is all ahead of tonight's final presidential debate between President Trump and Joe Biden. Investors for sure will be keeping a close eye on this. If something big does happen, we will see the markets react to it tomorrow morning. And corporate earnings are being filed still. When we look at individual stocks today, you know, third quarter results are uh, beating expectations. Tesla is up about 3%. The electric car maker reported its fifth consecutive quarter of profits after years of losses. Shares of AT&T rose about 5%. They reported a third quarter loss that missed expectations, but revenue that beat forecasts. Coca-Cola's shares added more than 1%. Shares of American Airlines slipped this morning following a decline in revenue, but rebounded this afternoon on hopes of stimulus talks where there would be additional aid for the airline industry. Also, Chipotle shares fell despite beating earnings due to robust delivery growth but the costs with delivery then hurt their profit. This all comes as companies are selling more debt and investors are buying more corporate bonds. Investors are turning to bond mutual funds and ETFs. We've never seen anything like this before, where companies have had to do so much refinancing within a year and really build a comfortable cushion of cash for them to sit on. To date, companies have issued $1.4 trillion of bonds in 2020, and there's still three more months left in the year. Companies are really weathering the coronavirus pandemic to make sure that they are flush with cash. When central banks slashed interest rates earlier this year, investors were pushed out of government bonds into corporate bonds to generate yields. This low level of yields and low interest rate policy means that we'll see consistent appetite for corporate bonds going forward. And now turning to new jobless claims that were released by the Department of Labor today. It's the first time since March that these numbers are below 800,000 weekly jobless claims. So that is since the pandemic began. And it's signaling a pickup in the market, but let's look a little closer at these numbers. Seasonally adjusted initial jobless claims fell to around 787,000 from around 842,000 last week. That number is revised, I should note, from around 898,000. 
This is all well below the estimate of 870,000 jobless claims uh, as well. This is all for last week too. We just want to clarify that. The reason for this decrease is because of California. They are now reporting actual figures, whereas prior weeks they were just reporting estimates given the backlog applications they were sorting through as well as their efforts to step up fraud prevention capabilities. Now, when you look at the pandemic unemployment assistance numbers, you see here around 345,000 pandemic unemployment assistance claims. That's for self-employed and gig workers. That's changed very little since last week. So in total, we're seeing more than 1 million new unemployment claims filed last week. You know, more than seven months now into the coronavirus pandemic, layoffs continue to remain very high. Over 23 million Americans are on unemployment aid still. And with that, I will pass it back off to Ed and let him and Peter take it from here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Haley. And welcome back, Peter. Thank you, Ed. Always fun to be here. You know, I was just telling you right before we did this that, uh, you know, I am a, uh, you and I, we've talked maybe like five times on uh, Real Vision now. And every single time that we talk, we talk about the markets, uh, asset prices in some capacity and sort of a forward look as to what's going to happen there. But I, I'm a subscriber now at the book report, which you write. You're the uh, the editor in chief there. And and by the way, the book report for all those people who are listening, uh, can you get a, a a trial for that at all? Yeah, you can sign up for a, a free trial just to s- s- test it out. Uh, B o o c k report dot com. Okay, and give it a, a get a free trial run. Yeah, and so you know, I, I read this, and I would say daily, actually more than once a day, oftentimes there's some very deep dives into the macro economy, uh, in terms of specific economic data that come out, and then you have your take on that and what it means uh, for the economy and potentially asset markets as well. So I actually, I want to turn our conversation on its head and not talk about asset markets first and foremost, but more about the deep dives that you do into some of the data releases that we've had recently. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. And you know, uh, Haley, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this is Haley, just before this, she was talking about, um, jobless claims that came out. Uh, today and those jobless claims were lower. I think it was below eight hundred thousand for the first time ever uh, since the pandemic hit. And I saw that you had a piece this morning talking about those jobless claims. Can you tell me what's your macro view? What what are jobless claims telling us now? Is this report uh, revealing in any way for you? Well, one thing that we that we know is that today's report was was actually accurate. Uh, the last about three weeks, California has been estimating uh, their claims number. And finally today they said, okay, we actually have uh, the real numbers. So as you pointed out, it did uh, come below 800,000 for the first time in a while, which the trajectory is good, but still around 800,000 is well above where it was pre-COVID at around 200,000. 
Uh, we also saw another decline in uh, continuing claims, which is now below 10 million, but it was 1.6, 1.7 pre-COVID. So the trajectory and the direction is there. It's just the pace that is going to be taking a while uh, to recover. I think that pace, whether it accelerates or not, a lot will have to do with the vaccine since leisure and hospitality is is a, a, obviously a a sector that has gotten hit the most on the labor front, but it's it's it, at least the direction is 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 in the right uh, the right place for now. Yeah, and, you know the the thing that I find interesting, you know, because when you talk about the eight hundred thousand number, that's a number that's above the highest levels during the Great Financial Crisis. So my question is, is where does the unemployment rate go? How many jobs are being added to the economy in order to make that number not cause unemployment to go up right it's a, a great question um i, I think well post-covid it's, it's, it's tough to say i mean pre-covid uh, the labor force would grow 100 to 150 200,000 a month so you needed that number of job hirings to keep the unemployment rate steady so this time around obviously the world's been turned upside down and uh, a lot of these jobs lost will be permanent losses, hopefully offset by a lot of new business generation. Uh, but I, I think it's it's really only fair to see how things are going to shake out after we get the vaccine, because right now it's just it, it's not going to be a fully functioning normal economy uh, until we get there. Now, some areas of the economy uh, obviously is, are doing much better, uh, whether it's manufacturing that 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 is. Build, rebuilding inventories again, particularly in the auto sector, where when you have two months of, of, of factory shutdowns, uh, you need to replenish that. Obviously, in uh, construction, uh, residential side, not not the commercial side, the residential side, uh, it's it's been uh, a good jobs market. If you're in the transportation sector, if you're a truck driver, you're you're in in in, in deep need. Uh, and the flip side, obviously, those industries that have gotten hurt the most by by this and 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 the the out-of-the-home type industries, well, that'll obviously take time, but a vaccine will be a determining factor on how much time. You know, is that a buy-the-rumor-sell-the-news kind of situation? Do you think that uh, the right places are going to be bid up to the point where, you know, we get the definitive call on the vaccine and uh, actually uh, they go down? Or do you think that there's still a lot of pricing in that needs to be done when we get to that point? I think there, well, it depends. I think if you look at the airlines that have rallied a lot off their lows, uh, their, their capital structures are different now. They've taken on a lot of debt to get through this. So certainly their business um, may, uh, will bounce back rather sharply, I believe, but it's the, it's the stock price that may partially reflect that. And then, but there are other areas that I think are, are still very much beaten down. Uh, whether it's it's those in the concert business, uh, those that are in catering, for example, uh, there's still a lot of upside room to rally in in, in those stocks that have really been left for dead. Uh, commodities, I think, have a lot of room to the upside, particularly oil, uh, because you'll have more people flying, more demand for jet fuel, more people out on the road going out again, and so that's an area that certainly. Uh, assumes that COVID's here forever and no one's going to be uh, right. traveling again. So uh, I think there's a lot of room in certain sectors. And then on the flip side, the whole work from home theme, 
uh, may have, have seen its day and that uh, valuations there have fully reflected and assuming that COVID's here forever when we know it's not. You know, uh, when I, I started out today, I was saying that you uh, you released uh, some great uh, macro analysis on uh, economic data uh, more than once a day to a certain degree. We're talking about the jobless claims, which came out at 830. And right now, actually on my screen, I'm looking at a post that you wrote uh, at 1123 it was on treasuries and uh, you had two charts on treasuries, one for the 10 year yield and the other for the 30 year yield. And I, what you're talking about here is approaching key levels uh, in terms of the 200 day moving average. Talk to me about what those levels signify to you and where we potentially could go from here on, uh, on treasuries. So I, I've been in the inflation camp uh, over the last couple months, believing that we're, we're beginning to see the early stirrings of it, and it's going to be a, a key story in 2021. And I've been trying to have people focus more on looking at the 30-year Treasury bond as a reflection of those expectations, of, of the market messaging, not just on inflation, but also growth, because the 30-year yield, 30-year bond, is least manipulated by the Fed. And it's the furthest out. So it's the most market-friendly part of the yield curve, you can call it. And I think we've seen this, this, this uptick recently, over the last couple of weeks in particular, well, number one, in anticipation of uh, stimulus. And we've seen also a lift in, in commodity prices, ex-oil, uh, natural gas at multi-year highs, food prices at multi-year highs, uh, industrial metals like copper uh, that has recently rallied. So this has all also led to higher inflation expectations in the tips market. And I pointed out that uh, the 30-year yield is already above its 200-day moving average, and the 10-year yield is just a few basis points away. And if it does exceed that 200-day moving average, would be the first time since uh, December 2018 that we had seen that. Now, yields, of course, are still very low, but I think we need to start paying attention to the rate of change. Uh, and, and, and see whether this continues, because if it does, and I think we're already seeing some signs of it, that uh, big cap tech and, and, and very frothy, expensive software stocks, for example, that uh, investors are starting to shift to cheaper things with this rise in rates, and that could impact the PE multiples of uh, those expensive stocks. How much of that do you think is is driven by inflation expectations and how much of it is driven by actual real growth because of the stimulus that you were talking about? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's probably more so on the inflation side. Uh, I, I think that the growth numbers, when we know housing is, has been a bright spot, but that's nothing right. new. Uh, we know autos have been a bright spot, that, but that's nothing new. Uh, I think what we've recently seen is, is, is an uptick in PPI and CPI, and as I mentioned, the commodity side. Um, and, and, of course, the inflationary implications of another fiscal spending package that has been able to maintain and even lift even higher a level of consumer demand that was not, wouldn't have been there otherwise, and that the transfer payments have more than offset the lost wages and salaries. Right. You know, um, when, you, when you talk about stimulus, immediately I think to myself about the election, which is coming up in two weeks, um, and, you know, I think that there are a lot, there are different things in play. Uh, when you break it down, it's not just at the presidential level, but it's also at the Senate level. I think everyone thinks the House is going to stay Democratic. 
are there configurations which are pro-inflation and or anti-inflation, as in Democratic uh, Senate, Republican Senate, you know, Democratic? Uh, what are the configurations which are most pro-inflation, and which ones are the most anti-inflation of those? Well, I, I think most scenario scenarios still point to inflation because if Biden wins, the Democrats take the Senate, uh, then you can assume that there's going to be more than $2 trillion spent, right. maybe the $3 trillion that they initially wanted. If Biden wins, the Republicans keep the Senate. I still think that there's going to be an urge, if it did, hadn't happened already, to still have a, a, a fiscal package. But obviously, it won't be as much, but it would still lend itself to, to higher inflation. And if Trump wins and the Republicans keep the Senate, well, they're probably going to still want to spend more money. And, 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 and really, we're just talking about a trillion here, a trillion there. It's still an enormous amount of money that's being thrown out there with the Fed monetizing a big chunk of it. Right. And I think regardless of who wins, you get that vaccine and you're going to see uh, uh, a higher demand that is going to more than offset the ability of the economy, both on the good side and services side, to deliver because supply chains have been turned upside down by this, by, by COVID. And um, I th now I, I view inflation as more of, of, of a cyclical thing rather than something secular. So what I'm looking for is not necessarily long lasting, but it can be lasting long enough uh, to cause some major disruptions in the long end of the bond market, both here and around the world, uh, if it were to occur. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by the way, as you were talking about that, you were saying uh, that the, the Fed and other central banks, you know, they've got the back of their government. I was talking to Michael, pa uh, Michael uh, Howell, who uh, comes on a decent amount, and we're looking for an interview with him later on. I think the number he cited was something like 95% of deficit spending, of additional stimulus that has been had, has been bought up through, uh, you know, central bank uh, buying uh, uh, since this whole thing has happened. So that's a huge amount of, we've got your back from the, from the monetary authorities. Right. And that, that was the, when, when the Fed started their QEs and everyone was expecting higher inflation. And obviously with all the QE in Japan and in Europe, uh, that was not met by higher inflation. Well, at least in, in, in Europe and the U S and to, to an extent in Japan, there's a lot of fiscal spending now that is, that is joining this. And, and, and that's potentially the inflationary cocktail that uh, I, I think we're going to see and is only going to be exaggerated upon a vaccine. And, uh, uh, you know, I think there's just this in, in assumption that, that, that people think that, we're, that they're extrapolating that the last six months are just going to continue on. And uh, uh, I, I've said this before with you that I think we need to start changing the conversation and, and start looking at what's the world going to look like uh, when this, when this uh, virus goes away. Right. And, you know, speaking of inflation, I thought it was interesting. Another post that you had earlier today, because existing home sales came out and they were at a 14 year high, it, uh, was it on existing home sales with the, the inflationary impact, uh, if you will, in terms of uh, the prices going higher. But at the same time, we all know that rents in big cities are going lower uh, and and mortgages mortgage rates are going lower. I mean, how do you break all of that down? What's what's actually happening in the housing market right now, and how helpful is it to the U.S. economy? Well, the demand side, as as, as probably most viewers know, has been pretty robust. Uh, whether it's people looking for just more space in the burbs versus the cities, 
people taking advantage of obviously low rates and uh, a dearth of inventory that has led to a spike in activity and also a spike in prices to the point where the rise in prices has fully offset the benefits of lower mortgage rates. So low, mor low mortgage rates aren't helping us anymore uh, in terms of making home buying more affordable. So I think that we have to start watching for the point where the rise in prices starts to actually slow the pace of transactions because it starts to price out some buyers, particularly the first-time buyer. One of the noteworthy things in, in the existing home sale number today was that, that first-time buyers made up 31% of, of all the purchases, which is a slowdown and uh, uh, the lowest level that we've seen in a while. So you wonder, the first-time buyer that's trying to buy a two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000 home, well, all of a sudden, if that's now two seventy dollars or three twenty. dollars well, that's extra money that they need to come up with uh, for a down payment, even if it's a down payment as little as three and a half percent. So that is something we have to watch for. Now, lending to the higher prices from a median standpoint is also the mix. Uh, a lot of the uh, pickup in purchases is on the upper end. In fact, homes sold priced above a million dollars is up 100 percent year over year. And one of the things that the uh, National Association of Realtors said in the press release was well, they're seeing a big pickup in the purchases of vacation homes, second homes. And they mentioned Lake Tahoe, Rehoboth Beach, Myrtle Beach, to name a few. So, yeah, if you can pay all cash and uh, you, you're fine uh, and, and you're, you're, you're more price insensitive. But for those that still have to get a mortgage and still have to come up with a down payment, uh, you wonder whether these aggressive price increases uh, sort of become self-defeating. Right. So basically, there is the potential that housing goes from an unmitigated boost to the economy to a push uh, going forward. I, I, at some point, for sure. And uh, uh, But for now, at least, it, it's it's been a bright spot for the economy. Uh, on the construction side, on the furniture side, the decoration side, the paint side, uh, the lumber side, we've seen obviously a big spike in lumber prices this year, even though they've given back uh, some of that gain. Uh, we're still up a lot from where we were just over looking at over the last 10 years. You know, there, there's like a ton of different uh, book report uh, issues that I'm looking at right now that are interesting. I mean, uh, there was one, I'm just trying to look at it. Uh, let me get to it. it the, the title says a, a deadline and then it's talking about and then it says Fed in China. It's the stuff on the Fed that I found really most interesting. I wanted you to talk to that. Uh, you were saying that you needed to, uh, to comment on a few Fed stories over the past few days. This is from Monday. And you were talking about Randy Quarles, the Fed governor, who said, quote, it may be that there's a simple macro fact that the Treasury market being so much larger than it was even a few years ago, much larger than it was a decade ago, and now really much larger than it was even a few years ago, that the sheer volume th uh, there may have outpaced the ability of the private market infrastructure to support stress of any sort there. So to me, that's like uh, he's saying, so we need to get in there and, uh, and make sure that uh, there's no stress in the market. What, what's he talking about? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. The, the world just can't function without the Fed. And every, every time something breaks, we need the Fed. The Fed's there to fix everything. It's just this, this amazing sense of, 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 of um, belief of arrogance and omnipotence that without the Fed, the, the U.S. Treasury market, which is the biggest, deepest market in the history of the world, somehow can't function without them. And, 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 and it really is a sign of just someone who doesn't understand markets, is that there are plenty of buyers. Anybody who understands markets, there's a buyer for any asset. Just a question of what price. It's just so. So here in this example is, yeah, maybe the Fed's not going to like the price at which buyers come together, but there's always going to be a buyer. Whatever dysfunction we saw in March, well, in private markets and free markets, that dysfunction fixes itself because at some level of price, more buyers come in. It's just that's how markets work. So he he reflected a lot of ignorance about his his knowledge about how markets work. Uh, to say that, oh, if it's not for the Fed, uh, that maybe we're going to get further dysfunction because of all this supply. Again, I promise you, if you get a self in treasuries and yields go higher, you will find more buyers for that treasury pay. Oh, yeah. And, you know, but to me, the, the, the seedy underbelly of what he's saying is, is, is that there's something wrong. If we're not there to fix uh, bad things, then bad things are going to metastasize in a way that will be very uh, ominous for the entire economy. It's almost as if he's saying that the system's not working. It's really on the brink. And, and the reason that we got to get in there is, is because we have no trust that if this unravels, uh, it will stay you know, mitigated in that little market. Right. The irony is, is that the, the, the Fed has, has broken that market both through and the, and the and the Congress, too, because Dodd-Frank dramatically limited the ability for large banks to even make markets. So whereas these large banks would provide a deeper market, Dodd-Frank has has totally neutered that. Uh, and then and then you throw in, of course, the Fed that itself has has broken the market because they've, they've created such a sense of, of dependency. Uh, and, and the market thinks, well, without the Fed, they can't function. But again, at the right price, markets function. It's just that's how markets work. Yeah. You know, uh, so going back to some of these other things that you wrote, because I, I, there's a ton of different things that are interesting. I saw, you know, from earlier in the week, you talked about the sentiment indices in Europe, but also um, from uh, 1019 about the sentiment index in the U.S. Uh, I think this one was about the NAHB in particular. Can, can you actually contrast for me, uh, compare and contrast what's happening sentiment-wise in Europe, whether it be on the consumer side or the company side, to what's happening right now in the United States? Well, in Europe, uh, the recent uptick in, in, in virus counts has, has, has stemmed the improvement in confidence, both on the consumer level where we saw German consumer confidence that's softened. On the business side, French business confidence softened, particularly on the service side, because they're enacting selective uh, restrictions and, uh, and, and, and limitations. And it just shows you know, the fits and starts that, that the, the world's economy is going through until we, we, we do get a vaccine. Uh, in the U.S., consumer confidence has lifted, 
but it's still well, well below where it was in February. You mentioned the NEHB Home Builder Index. Well, that's at record highs because uh, these builders see the dearth of inventory and low rates and and a pickup in demand. So they're as ebullient as you can get. The only problem with that is is that it probably can't get much better. Right. And that when you get to 85 out of 100, uh, there's not much more you can go on the upside uh, when 50 is 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 the break even. Uh, I think the manufacturing side has has seen a, a lift in confidence, but I think that has more to do with the, the rebuilding of inventory that I mentioned earlier that uh, that these manufacturers are benefiting from. And on the service side, it's still you know touch and go depending on what industry you're in. You know, um, I think three uh, three sort of macro things are coming out for me. I want to uh, outline the three that I'm I'm thinking about. And maybe you can tell me if there are others and then what that means for the economy and how you're thinking about asset allocation. Uh, the three that come out for me, one is inflation or the potential for inflation, especially commodity price inflation. I'm getting from you that the vaccine, that, that date, that's the thing that's the most important in, uh, from a, your perspective. And then the last is uh, has to do with housing and what you just said about the NAHB at 85 not having a huge upside, you know, it's definitely helping the economy, but going forward, we can't expect it to help it perhaps as much. Those are the three sort of macro uh, things I'm getting from what you're saying. Are those right? Are there others? And then just framing that for us, uh, how does that make you feel about where asset allocation has to be over the very medium term? I, I, I think that the the inflation thing and thesis of mind, the consensus everywhere, there's no inflation, limited inflation, rates are going to stay low forever. And, and, and that just seems to be the consensus. And, and, right. and we're seeing too many signs uh, of price pressures that are building. And, and it's selective. I mean, obviously, you're going to go on a plane, you're seeing price discounting. But that, that is, of course, uh, because of the uh, very limited demand. But in, in, in other areas like transportation, seeing double-digit increases for shipping, for air cargo, for truck loads, that people have to understand that every single good that gets produced in this world ends up on, on one of those transportation routes. And we saw uh, FedEx and UPS that is enacting surcharges. In fact, the right. is, is is implementing even more because they can't handle the capacity. So a lot of the inflation pressures I'm seeing right now is more supply side driven. So that's why I highlight the impact of the vaccine that can then have this increase in demand while parts of the supply side are still crimped. I mean, even take airlines, for example, uh, you get a vaccine and there's gonna be maybe a pickup in, in business travel. These airlines can't snap their finger and get thousands of pilots back just like that and get flight attendants back just like that. And, and get those planes back just like that. It's going to take time, and all of a sudden they're going to they're going to have a period of time where they're going to have pricing power. So I think to your asset allocation question is is that if we do if I'm right, and this becomes a story of 2021, and all of a sudden the 10 year yield, which was 60 something basis points just a few weeks ago, and all of a sudden is now 85, and all of a sudden you get a vaccine, it goes to one one and a quarter or even one and a half, one and three quarters, which people can say, well, it's still very low. But like I said earlier, it's the rate of change that's going to matter. Uh, all of a sudden, paying 40 times revenue 
for software stock uh, <laughs> may not be as attractive. Right. Yes. And 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 maybe the the and and if we do get this vaccine, maybe all of a sudden uh, other other stocks that have gotten hurt by this work from home and and don't go out and will all of a sudden be uh, a beneficiary. Maybe all of a sudden the commodity stocks are going to start to work and all of a sudden the, the value side of the equation looks more attractive and paying 10 times earnings instead of uh, 10 plus revenue uh, becomes more attractive. So uh, I think what and what that means is what's worked over the last couple of years is not going to work over the next couple of years and vice versa. And that is a cyclical play. Just to be, uh, uh, you know, to zero in, you were talking about inflation from a cyclical perspective, not a secular perspective. Yeah, I mean, the commodity side. Well, I, I don't know how long it could last, but maybe it lasts for another for a year or two on a, on a rally. Uh, you know, you look at some of these individual energy stocks. Well, first of all, energy as a group that's about two and a half percent of the S and P. I don't think there's ever been a sector of the S&P that's, that's been that small. Uh, I, I'm, I'm long Schlumberger, for example, and they reported earnings this week, or maybe it was last week. And um, this is a company who's got a $15 stock. It was 120 back in 2014. This is a, this is a A-rated, A-minus uh, a rated company. So a great balance sheet, generating free cash at the trough of a cycle and paying a 3% dividend yield after a cut. So I think, okay, this stock is down 87%, and we've seen this dramatic decline in, in rig counts in the US. Now, I know this is a, a global commodity, but the supply side has responded to this sharp decline in demand. So you get a, an inflection point higher in demand led by a vaccine, and there, there, there is not, these, these, the US shale is not rushing back to pump because a lot of these companies are out of business. There aren't going to be banks that are just going to start lending money again on, on $50 oil. Maybe it'll take $60 or $70 oil to bring more supply back. So I think there's a lot of leverage in this industry for an uptick uh, in prices that are going to surprise people. And, and, and right now, even after dividend cuts, uh, there are a bunch of names that are paying good dividends. Now, Exxon may cut their dividend. Right now, it's yielding 10%, to use that as an example, not long it. But to use that as an example, even if they cut it in half, you're still yielding 5%. And you can be sure if they cut it, uh, whatever is left over is going to be sustainable for a period of time. Uh, they're going to probably make sure of that. Yeah, I, I, like the, I like the thinking there, Peter. That's uh, very good nuggets at the end. So I hope that you enjoyed uh, flipping it on its head and doing more of the macro and then getting to that because that really, that really puts, it, uh, puts paid to how you're thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that if you're going to manage money for a living, uh, you got to pay real close attention to the macro side. As much as you need to focus on the bottoms up uh, in terms of understanding a business model or a balance sheet, uh, you still have to get the macro right, right as well. Good. Well, uh, thanks again, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Yep, sounds good. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.